0: Hey guys, Brandon here. We'll get you to the show in just a second. And if you want to listen to That 90s Baseball Pod early and ad-free, make sure to sign up at patreon.com slash that Baseball Pod. Subscribers at any level get the show as soon as it's created, early and ad-free. Now, for our sponsors, we have ePare, which is reasonably priced trendy kitchenware. That's ePare.com promo code 10 T90BP10. So that 90s baseball pod, T90BP, with 10 on either side. app that's S I M B U L L.app, is the stock market for sports. If you use the promo code BENDER, you get a free week of Symbol Gold. Hinterland Coffee in Minnesota is a freshly roasted coffee experience every single week. Monthly subscriptions get 10% off. Go to hinterlandmn.com. Three Star Sports Cards. You can find them online or in person in Bloomington on Lindale Avenue or in Little Canada on Rice Street or threestarsportscards.com. And finally, Humility Chains. Royce Lewis's mom, Cindy, makes stylish, affordable chains and necklaces and bracelets that go, uh, the proceeds go directly to the Nigu Foundation to help children fighting cancer. So a portion, again, of those proceeds go to the Nigu Foundation to help children fighting cancer cancer more than 20 styles of chains and bracelets are available they're affordable they look great i'm wearing mine right now i highly recommend them it's humility chains on etsy so look up etsy and then search for humility chains and now on to your show back here for another episode of that 90s baseball pod powered by access twins my name is brandon warren i'm your host you can find me on twitter at brandon underscore w-a-r-n-e and we're going to cut right to the chase obviously greg olson is here you can find him on twitter at greg olson 30 with two g's but greg we have a very special guest and i'm going to dive right into it and in fact i'm going to let you dive right into it and introduce our, our very special guest
1: yeah, uh, my manager with the Arizona Diamondbacks, 98-99, former Yankees manager in the early 90s, went to the Diamondbacks, went to the Rangers, and then the last place he was was eight or nine years in Baltimore, uh, three-time manager of the year, Buck Showalter. What's up, Walter? What's
2: up?
1: We're doing good,
0: Buck. Thanks for coming on.
2: Thanks for having
0: me, Gregory. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm curious, just before we get going, what it was like to manage a guy like this? What's, what's a manager-relief pitcher relationship like? Because you guys are pretty distant during the game. You know, you're not milling about talking to each other so much during the game. And then you add in the fact that Greg's kind of a fun guy to be around, and I'm sure he was a little different than maybe other relievers you had. I, I'm curious what your relationship was like all those years ago
2: well you know Brandon he uh Greg was towards the end of his career at that point and he was basically just out thinking people he invented this change up that he had in his back pocket he still had a good curveball better than most I can tell you that but his velocity had crept down and uh, he just figured out a way to survive but you know it, the ability to manage a bullpen and they come in all shapes and sizes different personalities different abilities and to be able to kind of, Greg was very adaptable. You know, he was a guy that could, uh, you know, kind of dial up what was needed in the situation. But uh, the only problem I ever had with Greg was he was, he gave, he was so much smarter than hitters that I used to get on him about quit giving them so much credit. You know, they, they're not thinking on the same brainwave as you are. It's like Earl Hershiser. I said, Earl, you got to dumb down some, you know, these guys you're dealing with, you're talking about, linear things that they have no idea what you're talking about. And with Greg, it was, you know, I always try to pick really good relief pitchers brains about what went into relief pitching and in the bullpen, what challenges do you face? How can a manager make um, your job easier? What do I need to understand that I may not understand? And, and Greg was always a good source of information for that. Thank you.
0: So Greg, you never did the Frank Robinson thing with Buck here. Uh <laughs> That was my game, man. And well, obviously you weren't 22 years old when you had him, but, um, yeah, he tells a story on the show of storming into Frank Robinson's office back in 80, was it 89? 89, 89. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I don't want to steal it. It's your story.
1: No, Buck, we had a uh, fog game in Baltimore playing the Yankees in 89. It was my rookie year and I had been closing for about two months and all of a sudden, it's a two-to-one game. Fog cut rolls in, and I don't, I don't get the ball in the ninth inning. And Mark Williamson did. And long fly ball lost in the fog. We lose three to two. And I had the um, tenacity to walk in and say, uh, Frank, that was my game. Why didn't I pitch? And he was actually really nice about it. <laughs> I still can't believe you survived to this
0: day, honestly, really. <laughs>
1: what, what was his response? I'm curious uh he just said that you know what he didn't feel like it was a good game for me to be in and he laid out a couple reasons why he didn't put me in and and it was good enough that I said oh thank well thank you sir and walked out and then you know the funniest part of the story was my pitching coach Al Jackson looking at me on the way out of the office and goes you can't do that and I was like why I was just you know I mean it was just young and not not very smart and Didn't know the ways of the
2: world, but Frank was great. Well, you know, I'll tell my Frank Robinson story. For some reason, I had him speak to the team, and he and I got along great, and I I love what Frank stood for. But one day I was out on the field during batting practice, and somehow he was through my office, which was his office at one time, and I got a note on my desk because I had a couple of pictures of Johnny Oates and some managers that they had just put on the wall. But Frank's picture didn't make the wall. And there was this note on my desk, where's my blanking picture, Frank Robinson. <laughs> so uh, next time Frank came back there, I had a picture of Frank, huge picture right there. And I called him in my office. Well, I didn't call You don't call Frank. You ask him if he would come in. And, and uh, you know, he had a, he had a rear exit in the in the coaches that I had to put a wall up over, a way for him to get in and out when nobody knew he was there. It was like a secret entrance at Camden Yard. Did you know that? I did not know that. You know where that coffee machine of mine was in the back? That yeah. used to be an escape route for Frank. <laughs> now we know.
0: Yeah, we do. That's pretty good. Well, pretty good. Buck, we we obviously know you as a manager, but what I want to ask is, when when you became a manager, and as near as I can tell, that was in your late twenties. Before that, when did you feel like that was something you were going to do or wanted to do? What What kind of inclination does a person or a player have that they're going to be a manager?
2: I never did. A lot of these guys, you know, one of the things we're missing in today's game is we don't develop managers and coaches for the big leagues. When I went to Arizona, I wanted to be a self-sustaining organization when we were putting that together. If we needed a hitting coach in the big league, we should be able to take the hitting coordinator from the minor leagues. If we needed a trainer who left or retired, we should be able to take the, the training coordinator you know the next in line and you know they don't develop those guys I mean name five up-and-coming young managers right now right you can name 15 you don't anymore because we don't you know they don't get that experience at the at the minor league level and winter ball and instructional league but the, I never really said okay I'm going to do this and it might lead to this it wasn't that I wasn't ambitious my last year playing in 83 I had a chance to continue playing in triple a for the Yankees go to another organization and be, play in triple a or they offered me a hitting job in the Florida State League uh, with Barry Foote and Dave LaRoche, and I just got married. You know, I've always been able to look at myself realistically, and I knew that I probably wasn't going to be the first baseman left fielder for the New York Yankees with this guy named Mattingly there in Balboni. And so I started my trek. I didn't want to start my reputation all over again. And, you know, I said, I'm going to grind the heck out of this job and see where it leads me. And I remember getting a phone call in a phone booth in Instructional League down in Bradenton, with the Pirates, we were bug-infested. Phone booth outside the dormitory. Remember dormitories? And uh, <laughs> it was Bobby Hoffman asked me if I wanted to manage in One Island, New York Penn League, next year. And uh, I said, "Would well, you think I can do it? I'm asking you. If you don't think you can do it, I'll get somebody else. So I started at, what, 28-ish? And I just said, I'm going to do One Island as good as I can do it and see where it leads me. You know, these people that have this time frame oh, I needed to be doing this at this age and do this and do that. <clears throat> My advice, take the job you're given, grind the heck out of it. And you might be surprised where it leads you, and do it in a classy way where you're not trying to to wait for somebody else to fail to get promoted. Okay, I'm done preaching.
0: That's a oh, good man. that's a yeah, good lesson, really. especially to uh from a reliever's point of view. That's a good lesson, I would guess too. Isn't that probably accurate, Greg?
1: Oh, no. I mean, that that uh, words of wisdom is, you know, to get rid of the timeline is perfect. And, and it works in baseball, it works in life. And it's uh it's one of the reasons why I, I love Buck. And, and I don't, you know, just kind of came up and I was like, man, this guy, would, you know, Buck would be perfect to discuss the 90s, because most of our conversations um, started out light and he'd give me some tidbit on something that I wouldn't know. And then we'd move into some baseball thoughts, and it would get deeper. But um, you didn't do the light part on that one, Buck. That was that was a nice piece of wisdom, honestly, for our listeners. You know,
2: there's certain guys you, you got to be careful about going too deep with. You know, Greg always got it. And if I could ever get a quizzical look from him, Brandon, I knew I'd gotten real deep. And it didn't happen very often. Hey, i got to ask you, did you start at Auburn? Did you start at Auburn or do you relieve at Auburn? Uh, freshman, year,
1: freshman year I started, and uh, I, could, I couldn't handle sitting around, you know, pitching on Saturdays. So um, my mind, my uh, arm all worked to be a reliever, and nobody had really done it at the college level. So Hal Baird gave me a shot in the fall, and it was fun. It was easy, and it kind of got me back into playing every day.
2: So I'm just, I can't, I can name, I think, Brandon, two guys that were drafted as a relief pitcher only. I think Paul Shuey, You Most scouts will tell you it's a graveyard to take a relief pitcher out of college. Greg was the exception.
0: Houston Street is another one that comes to mind, I think.
2: Yep, um, that's great. Okay, and then think about all the other ones that
0: did Oh, yeah. Yeah, guys like Mariano Rivera, and, and this goes back to your other point. You don't become Mariano Rivera just because you want to be overnight. Even Mariano Rivera, Set up for John Wetland, didn't he? I mean, Brandon, I, I have, had,
2: yeah. There's a, there's, a, there's a process. Yeah. People don't, know, and the process, they want to cheat the process. But I got a report that I failed on Mariano and instructional league, the Gulf Coast league, I think with extended spring. You want to find out if you want to manage, go to extended spring mm-hmm. instruction. And we used, <laughs> play, we used to play a, a game on. We had camp day where we didn't play games. And with I'd let the pitchers play a game. I didn't let New York know about it because they would have got upset. But my best center fielder was Mariano Rivera. And I'd said in the report, if it doesn't work out pitching, and he never is able to grasp a breaking ball, his wrist was so stiff he couldn't throw a breaking ball. He had a big old, big old uh, wrist. Still does. I said this guy you should let him play the outfield. He'd get three or four hits. He'd run the ball down. And uh, I think they, I think they chose the right way to go with him. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, that's probably fair to say. I, I think too, I think I get some of those quizzical looks from Greg and I think that's why he hasn't quit on me yet is because he said a couple times and I'm not tooting my own horn here that I've asked him some questions he hasn't been asked before. And I know not only you, Greg, but, but you as well, Buck, you like when types like me ask you questions that aren't the same question over and over and over. How did no, it I'm feel? Not,
2: no, I'm not challenging you to ask something really stupid and really embarrassing. Okay.
0: But go ahead and try. I don't even know if I can. <laughs> I think uh, I think Ron Gardenhire kind of beat that out of me a couple times here uh, about ten years ago. So I'm I'm pretty good there. He he let me have it a couple times, and I've learned my lesson. Paul Molitor did one time too. So um, I'll I'll try to be very very uh, deliberate with my my questions. Um, when foundationally, we're here to talk about 1990s baseball. We get in and out of our comfort level, whatever. But when I ask you about the 90s, I think of 90s culturally as one of the most important demographics or whatever, centuries, or sorry, decades not centuries, um, because the world changed so much with the internet. But in baseball, too, I think the if you compare the early 90s to the late 90s, the game evolved a lot. And there were different reasons for that. But when you think about the 90s on the whole in the major leagues, what things come to mind or what do you think of when you think of 1990s in the big leagues?
2: First of all, I hope I'm wrong, but I think I'm right. We had a lot more fun back then than they had today. Really did. Mm-hmm. Everything, everything, because everything wasn't on your sleeve and there for public fodder, guys were more comfortable being themselves. I've always been real protective of the, of the team's mode of where they could be a team, whether it be the locker room, whether it be the bus, whether it be the plane. That's why spring training is my favorite time in the year other than the playoffs, because it's one of the places where a team can be a team. They can drop their hair in a stretch line and be themselves. And you get to know guys and, you know, we've eliminated, you know, let's face it, the locker room now is an interview room. At least it used to be before the COVID problem. And um, I just, you know, you see a lot of more nineties style baseball in the playoffs now Mm -hmm. because they're trying to win as a team. They throw away everything that, might be look at me individualism and let's do that how dare you ask me to bunt or take a walk or whatever uh steal a base it seems to be embraced more in the playoffs because guys are trying to win there's so much more of a. I think that's why people love the playoffs because it's so much more of a team-oriented approach as opposed to swing hard collide with a ball and breakouts whatever greg your thoughts don't get me going no, I, I, same thing. I got uh, a buddy of mine
1: asked me that the other night, and he was watching, you know, one of the great games. I think Red Sox-Rays or one of those games that was just, you know, epic. And he goes, why, why is it so much more fun? I said, because everybody's doing everything to win. And I, I just basically said, you don't have guys drifting through their at-bats in the fourth, fifth, and sixth innings, of where now all of a sudden they're fighting for those at-bats. They become really important, and it's always – Every pitch matters. You know, I make one mistake and it, it could cost us, you know, the end of our season. You and know, uh, that's it's just thing. more fun. Go ahead. You know, I had, had a question. I had a question for you, Buck. And I was always curious. Like I said, you always, uh, always thinking were there guys that you managed against? And I don't want any names because that wouldn't be fair. But were there guys that you managed against that you knew if it came down to, a tight ball game, you had you had the
2: ability to beat them. Let's see. How do I put this? I, I sit on the air the other day with Dusty and Tony, you always felt like they could take his and beat yours and take yours and beat his. Okay. Yeah. So all things being equal, you know, it's funny. I, I had to do a three-game series recently, watched all three games, and, and Tony was managing. This is two three months ago. And I just kept chuckling to myself because he was like he was playing chess. The other guy was playing checkers. And I knew it was man overboard. And he said, I know how Tony does things. And he he set him up in the fifth and sixth inning. The guy bit, And it came the eighth and ninth inning. He had no he had no moves left. And Tony had set him up to fail. And but for three hours, Tony is still Tony. As far as managing a game and being on top of things and uh, watching him and Dusty. Collide was kind of fun, and uh, but I chuckle watching him dissect a guy. Now uh, w- there was a manager one time. I'm not going to get into names, but he was one of those reaction managers. If you brought in a left-handed pitcher in the fifth inning, he was going to hit a pinch hitter, a right-handed guy. And you, you know that guy, Greg. I mean, he was. And I'll tell you, what you did things in the fifth or sixth inning to set up the eighth and ninth, and he had nothing. And we always beat them in the eighth and ninth inning. And nobody could figure out why. And it was, uh, you know, some of the things, i tell you the tough guys to make against the guys that you're not sure if they're seeing the game within the game. You know, they see that jelly leg on the throw Do they see uh, an early break uh, by a, a corner on a bunt? Do they see, uh, you know, how your bullpen's being set up to, to counteract something? I'd rather, it was tough, but I would rather manage against Leland and La Russa and and Sparky and all those guys that I broke, I, you know, I, I broke my teeth in by because I knew they saw the game. They watched the game within the game. First time I saw Jim Leland, he was managing in Lakeland in the Florida State League, and I was playing in a junior college tournament. This guy was 26, 27 player coach, and I went, wow, but you know, you only learn those things by being in situations. You know, I tell people all the time, I go, well, I've seen that before. They go, you ever seen that before? I said, yeah, I've been in, have you been in Instructional League? Have you been in extended Spring? Have you been in uh, Dominican Republic in the winter? I mean, you see all type of things. And it's just, I, I kind of, it's some of these guys, it's not their fault, Greg. They just haven't been exposed to the, enough situations and enough personalities to, to do some things. Interesting.
0: Yeah, it's it's, right. it's like a facing someone in poker who's never played before, and they the win what they win with a, a a flush that they didn't even know they had in their hand. You don't really, and that that just makes you embarrassed because you're like, I should be killing this guy.
2: Exactly, that's a good way <laughs> to put it. But I, I I would actually rather if I've got equal footing as far as talent and players, I'd rather. I know Tony's going to see things. I know that Dusty's going to see certain things that tell you. You know, it's like the wild card rosters. When you see a roster for one card, a one game, you've got the managers basically telling you how he's going to play the game. You know, it, it, it's one of the few times where they kind of reveal the way they're going to go about trying to set up certain situations up to you to keep that situation from coming.
0: Yeah. It's like reading the table of contents before you read the book. That's, that's an yeah. interesting point. So if Greg doesn't have anything immediate to ask you, I want to ask how 1992 came about for you because that, you know, that's your break you're in your mid thirties and now you're managing a big league club. And we saw it with, you know, Tom Kelly, a few years before teams uh-huh. had gone with some guys who were, were younger to, to run teams and you were, you are taken over in New York. And um, you know, obviously a bit of a pressure cooker as always. Uh, what was that feeling like when you were basically, I don't want to say dropped into the job, but given the job and, what were your expectations like when you started?
2: Well, you know, at the press conference, they asked me, uh, what type of plan or whatever. I said, well, I got a one-year contract. So I'm on a one-year plan. We're going to take each stake. Imagine that now they sign a manager to a one-year contract. No, there was, was $175,000 to manage the New York Yankees. <laughs> I barely broke even and it was worth every penny. but I, uh, you know, I wasn't Gene Michaels' first choice, and he told me that. And Gene was the most honest guy. S- uh, stick with our GM, and he, uh, Mr. Steinbrenner, was on probation, if you remember right. And uh, I remember about ten days into spring training, he came in my office early one morning. He'd been watching the workouts, watching everything. He, he always called me, "Hey, boy," he said, "Hey, hey, boy, this is gonna work. I've been watching you. This is good. This is gonna work. Uh, uh, you, you can do this." And he turned around, and walked out, and I went. Wow. You know, and he's right up front. He said, listen, you were my first choice ownership forced me to take you one because I wasn't going to make any money. And I had come up through their system, but you know, you just take each day and you grind the heck out of it. You know, you try to out relationship people. You try to out, you know, in Baltimore, I told everybody, listen, what are we willing to do that the Yankees and the Red Sox and the people with big payroll can't do, you know, and we signed better six-year free agents. We, we had a better farm system. We had better relationships with our players. We had better training. We fed our players better at each facility. We had better communication with our uh, Latin American program. You know, we, just a lot of ways that that we could make up the distance. So we tried to do that in 92. And uh, we had some good young players coming that we had to keep our organization from trading, you know, whether it be Bernie <laughs> yeah. Way- Mariano, uh, we traded for Paul O'Neill. You know, everybody spends so much time, you know, coveting the other people's players, but you know, you want to be able to evaluate your own. So many people can't evaluate your own. And that's that's really kind of one of the things that's been bothering me about baseball today is they're making so many mistakes on player evaluation because they don't have those relationships and don't make those phone calls to find out the other attributes that you look for in major league players.
0: That- That seems like an inefficiency you can't afford. You need to know your own before you know anybody else. And like when I think about signing free agents versus signing your own guys, when you look at the twins, for instance, do you sign Jose Barrios, your own guy, or do you go to the outside and sign Josh Donaldson if you have to choose? Well, you dance with the guy who brought you there because you know his entire entire medical history, so on and so forth. I always felt like if teams like the twins or the Cardinals, those middle, upper middle both teams as far as finances have to choose one way to build. It's going to be to keep your own guys because you should know them. That's a, that's a really brutal inefficiency. If you don't know your own guys, because then you're just trading them, you know, basically all willy nilly for uh, whatever someone dangles in front of you.
2: Well, I think a lot of times GMs get forced into making something, you know, sometimes the best move you make is a move you don't make in, in this trading deadline. Oh, you didn't do anything. Oh yes, I did. I kept Jose Barrios or whoever, yeah. You know, I, I look who I added. I had Mike Trout coming off the DL. I had this guy who's going to be better than the guy I got coming off the DL. But you know, the fans back these guys sometime into thinking they have to do something. And I I tell you that the, the role of the general manager and the type of people that are general managers nowadays um, are, are different, not, not better or worse. It's just a different mindset. And uh Sometimes the best moves you make are the moves
1: you don't make looking back at it. Very
2: nice. Hey, I wanted to, I know
1: Brandon's going to bounce all over the place, <laughs> but I was, I was curious, you know, cause I was with you again in 98 and I saw you actually walking around in Kansas city in 97. And I, I you know, I think you were out looking for people because you had the, uh, the expansion draft, but You came in 96. What all did your job entail? It seemed like you were, you know, should have been the de facto general manager of the diamondbacks from 96, 97, you were setting the whole organization up. Legend had it that you designed the, a had, you know, had the socks to wear it was, you know, worn by the way, the Yankees did it. We couldn't uh, I can do it now, but we couldn't have the mustache below the lip line. So your hands were in everything from 96, 97 into 98. What all did you do?
2: Well, if someone called me today, Brandon, said, hey, we'd like for you to run the expansion draft again with a two years, i go, no way. almost died. <laughs> I
0: thought
2: you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I ain't kidding. You. I've never been so physically tired. It was seven days a week for two years. You know, all the coaches that Mr. Steinbrenner wanted to fire, uh, which is the reason I left New York, I took them with me to Arizona and, you know, they all worked and they went on to have long careers. And so I feel good about standing up for the right guys. But um, I, Greg, there wasn't anything that we didn't do, but there were a lot of things I got credit for that I didn't do. You know, the, the owner in New York had the hair and facial stuff rule. The owner in Arizona had the rule. The owner in Texas had the rule. The owner in Baltimore had the rule. I was just enforcing it. In fact, one of the biggest things I did in Baltimore was got him to allow the players to have goatees. When I walked in that locker room and told them they could now have goatees, Mark Akis and Adam Jones said there's a new sheriff in town. So <laughs> that, was, that was huge to, to get that. But they, uh, I don't know, the, the Arizona, whether it be farm system, the uniforms were already there when I got there. You know, here's a tidbit for you. It was either Diamondbacks or Scorpions. This was right before I got there. They did this. And the uniform scorpions was beautiful scarlet and metallic silver, just a beautiful uniform. The other one had, as you know, Greg, a lot of different colors. And uh, the people in the room voted eight to one. And the one person, let's put it this way, had a lot of power. So we ended up being the Diamondbacks, not the scorpions. He didn't want to be a crustacean, as he said, a bug. And the person <laughs> says, Do you want to be a snake? But now we, uh, I actually down, Uniforms. We had five uniforms. I used to get a mannequin to dress every day. We had three socks, three belts, five jerseys, three pants. And I finally got a mannequin down from Macy's and uh, put it in the middle of the locker room and uh, dressed it every day. We got it down to three. We got it down. To, we had five hats. We got it down to a black jersey, a white jersey. We had a sleeveless top and a black robe and a gray but we we got the the A was so big, and we got it kind of downsized. Actually, downsized even looked like a baseball hat. We went with purple, black, and an alternate. But you know, you guys did a lot of things to that mannequin that really were obscene uh, along the way. <laughs> uh,
1: I just, you know what? The I, I I think we only wore them one time. Was the white baseball
2: hat we went walking awful, out awful
1: day awful. game, and I was like, we look like the ice cream guy that was driving awful. down the street.
2: Yeah, you know, they used to send down, hey, please wear this so we can sell it. I thought the worst one was the purple hat with the with the turquoise, oh, the yeah. turquoise hat. It was god awful. <laughs> I you know it was funny because the rumor had it that you had been there and designed everything. No, and- I can give you 10 things. All that stuff was there when I got there. You know, the only thing I did was I went to Japan trying to sign Ichiro and went to Korea and they wow. put the they put the foul poles in while I was gone, when they were building. And I got there. They wanted me to look at them. They were real proud of them. I said, well, we got a problem because the netting was in foul ground. And they had to come back in, break the concrete up, send <laughs> the foul poles around. <laughs> that wasn't good news. Yeah. The only a thing. Of like that. Where's our first spring training? You know, we had these minor leagues for two years. We we drafted and uh, we didn't have uh, Tucson yet so we went to Yuma Arizona Greg mm. have you ever been to Yuma Arizona yeah I was with you when we did uh spring training in 99
1: 98 98 we went we, there we went there the first year and all the all the good guys were on the plane and and the rest of us were on the bus <laughs> yeah they, certain guys got to ride the plane wow well, I forgot about that yeah, I, I, I threw well enough that night that you threw me on
2: the plane <laughs> on the way back. So, I'm sure you can get to Yuma from there. Tucson to Yuma. Try that bus ride sometime. I oh. thought we were going to die,
1: honestly, going going through the cliffs and everything else. It was like, hell, oh, it wasn't good. Um, it was just funny. Everybody thought that you had your hand in everything. I, I think the only thing I really didn't like other than the white hat was the, um, was
2: the stripe from home plate to the mound. You know, I have had pitchers tell me that's the greatest thing since refried beans. They loved it because, you know, that was – I did do that. I'm going to tell you that. There were two or three things. I had nothing to do with the hat. I had nothing to do with the socks. I had nothing to do it's, – it's hilarious, these things that people run with because it fits their narrative. But I wanted people to walk by the TV and go, oh, that's where the Dimebacks play. Nice. And it be a tribute to old-time baseball. If you look back, a lot of the old fields, they had that lane. That first year, I should have had a lane from the dugout because I wore that out going out to the mound. The <laughs> but, you know, it was uh, an alignment thing uh, that they used, but they also got so wore out years ago, they didn't come back and reshod that they finally would just cut it out. Detroit still has it. Mm-hmm. We did another thing where we put grass on the warning track next to the fence because I saw it in Korea. It was a great Design where you had grass as you're running, then you feel cinder, and then you feel grass again, and know you got one step and a jump. And we made a lot of great catches that year at the fence, but the other team would get gator arms when they got close. But uh, we couldn't keep the sod growing because we were inside. We finally had to take it out because we were resodding all the time.
0: Huh? Now, yeah. as Go as ahead, a young man. Oh, as a young Twins fan, I have to say that I've never forgiven you for drafting Damian Miller in the expansion draft. So hey, let me tell you what, you know, I, I'll tell you this.
2: Not Travis had, Lee,
0: not Travis Lee, by the way. I'm, I'm mad about Damian Miller.
2: You should, should have signed Travis. You screwed that up too. Yeah. So, we, uh, you know, during that expansion draft, one of the best bit of advice I got, I kept asking Miami and the Rockies. If you had to do over again what would you do? If you had to do over again what would you do differently? And the one thing they kept telling me was don't fall in love with expansion draft players. They're there for a reason. This team's had 2 years to get their protection list down. You'll have 3 or 4 clubs that might actually lead a de- decent player out there. So if you look back at that list, we turned those guys over. We found out who other clubs liked. We traded Green Garcia for Luis Gonzalez. We traded uh, for Tony Womack we traded for so we turned those guys over and we had four or five keepers we liked Damian Miller a lot we liked Kelly Stinnett we had Jeff Supon and Brian Anderson and Omar Dahl we had uh, Dave DeLucci that fit us and the rest of it we went the trade route we turned those players over where Tampa uh, basically thought they were going to put together a championship club the expansion draft and I got some great advice from other clubs and uh, ran with it from the clubs that had actually gone through the process.
0: <laughs> well, they haven't won a championship yet, so they're still chasing that one. Um, <laughs> uh, so if, if we can go back to New York for just a brief second, uh, how did expectations change from 92 to 94 and 95? And how did the environment around the Yankees change? Because uh, I think a lot of people who weren't around then, and I was that was when I was getting into baseball, don't really realize what the the Yankees were like in the early 90s compared to the mid and late all the way until now well we had
2: had a mid-level payroll too we weren't like uh you know it was I wouldn't say it was a salary cap but everybody knew what what, where they were going to go and where they weren't going to go and uh but we had some good young players coming and we had had some before but we traded them away and because Mr. Steinbrenner was suspended you know Stick and I were able to kind of go with those guys and go through the growing pains with those young players. And uh, I remember that he wanted us to trade Bernie Williams. We thought we were dead wrong about him being a good player. You know, Mariano Rivera was in some trades that Stick wouldn't make. People tried to get him. They tried to get Andy Pettit. They tried to get Jorge Posada. Posada was a second baseman in the structure league. first time I saw him. And uh, we moved him behind the plate because he couldn't run a lick. And he couldn't move, but he could catch and throw (laughs) Um, there's a lot of different stories through the years about but that was the first time we were able to say here's where we're going here's how we're going to get there and i think people bought that in new york you know they sniff out a phony in a heartbeat but you know a bunch of lip service it's like the same thing when i went into baltimore i said listen we're not going to here and talk about all the things that we're going to do we're not going to throw the previous people under the bus and god bless everybody once you get in a situation you realize some of the challenges they had that you weren't aware of, you know, don't throw the previous people under the bus, just, just shut up and, it and get better.
0: It's real simple. I like it. If uh, I have to ask you if let's just say in a bizarro world where Derek Jeter never makes the big leagues is Bernie Williams, the cornerstone for those teams, in your opinion? Uh, I just feel like he's underappreciated. I I, I
2: agree with that. <laughs> I agree with that, but cornerstone, I, I just think they all were a five, five or six uh edge stone. You know, Derek was a product of of uh of Bernie and Jorge and Mariano and I'm gonna miss four or five different guys under the radar that you know, and that's really some, one of the things the Yankees are missing a little bit is a lot of their homegrown guys. You know, you you've got Judge and you know, and I could probably name a couple more, but uh, you know, the ability to a lot of guys they want that instant. Return. They're not willing to, to let these guys kind of ply their trade and put good people around them to kind of show them the way. That's why Nelson Cruz, it, you know, is such a big commodity uh, in baseball because, you know, he's not afraid to have that frank, honest conversation with guys. And, uh, but, you know, the fans bought into what we were doing. And a lot of people tell you this to the day that that crowd in 95 was uh, the loudest that stadium's ever been. I, I thought the place was going to fall. But, blocks were shaken in, in the dugout. It was something, but, uh, you know, we just had a strike and I think one of the great uh, compliments was that that series brought a lot of people back to baseball. So, uh, if that's what we got as a result of getting beaten game five, I'll, I'll wear that.
0: My, uh, my favorite Nelson Cruz story is in 2006. Um, my brother's disabled. So we were in the, the handicapped area of the metrodome trying to get to our seats and there's this hitter just, smacking away at BP like 10 minutes before the game. And I'm, I'm kind of trying to figure out who it is. And I, I Cruz, it says, and I'm like, Oh, Nelson Cruz. Yeah. He, so at that point, he's a guy who's, you know, he's, he's, he's getting that dreaded quad a label. And so he's trying to hit his way out of it. And I just remember that from 2006 and now he's still going today in 2021. And to me, it was just incredible to see him working on it in a dimly lit cage at the Metrodome, In the dingy old Metrodome, uh, almost 16 years ago now. Did you just say quad A? I did. did. Uh Uh-oh, am I in trouble? What what is it about
2: young people today, Greg, they want to abbreviate everything. (laughs) Everything's got to have, you know, 4A, quad A, I guess that's not really abbreviation. But think about going through your day, (laughs) you abbreviate. It's just lazy, okay? (laughs) Oh, man. But anyway, I've never heard (laughs) And I would be really cool if I use that on the air, quad A. I'm going to use that. Do it. (laughs) We traded for Nelson in Texas, John Hart. Mm -hmm. He he was kind of a throw on Carlos' lead deal because we knew Carlos was going to leave at the end of the year. And John told Milwaukee that we had to have something to show for him. And he kind of liked this guy named Cruz. Well, he knew all about him and the rest is history.
0: Well, and he's, he's kind of the precursor to when Toronto was doing the, the Edwin Encarnacion thing and the um, Jose Bautista, you know, the patience with a guy who needs to come into their own in the late 20s. And again, we can talk about the 90s versus now. There's, that patience doesn't seem to exist much anymore.
2: You know, and well, it's, it's a gratification. Hey, wait a minute. I, I, I spent a season in single A, double A, triple A. It's your responsibility to put me in the big leagues. Used to be if you couldn't execute something in the big leagues, you got sent down to sit down in triple A to figure out how to do it. Hey, when you learn how to not strike out 150 times, we'll bring you back up. When you learn how to bunt and when you learn how to hit and run, when you learn how to hit a, a turn double play, when you learn how to throw to second base, there was a lot of prerequisites that it, it wasn't an instant gratification and you know things change, but there was a lot of accountability back in the early 90s. You you had to, you know, you knew what the job description was for sure.
0: So before I turn you loose with Greg and Arizona stuff for the last few minutes, I do have to ask though. So today is as we're recording the 20th anniversary of the Derek Jeter flip play to get Jeremy Giambi at the plate. And you had Derek Jeter as a very young player, um, probably more so in like spring training and that sort of thing than opposed to actual games. Cause he only came up very late in 95. Um, what did you notice about him then and what did he develop after that maybe you didn't notice? What made Derek Jeter Derek Jeter back then?
2: Well, first of all, let me say this, and I've told Derek this, and he knows that. He was actually late on that play. You know, that's where he's supposed to be. He shouldn't have been on the run. You know, we talked about that play in spring training. When With a man on first, extra base hit down right field line, short, uh, third baseman, excuse me, second baseman, first baseman go out. Depending on if the first baseman has to dive for the ball down the line, the second baseman is usually the – lead guy, unless the first baseman can really throw. Am I getting too deep here? Mm -mm. Man on first uh, and uh, ball down the corner. So many times they tell the shortstop to go in between. First, His first responsibility is the ball coming clean off the wall and being a play at second base, single possible double. Well, as soon as the ball's not contained, it's a sure double, a lot of people tell him to sit there and read it and go one way or the other, you know, line up the third, or line up the plate, and you end up not getting either play. So we changed that a couple springs before where we wanted the shortstop to go all the way over and line up there because you would catch that ball and redirect it to third for a trail runner. You mm-hmm. would never catch that ball going to third and redirect to the plate. So actually when I see Derek and he's getting all these accolades for that, we chuckle because I go, you know, you're actually late. I won't tell anybody. But you know a great thing about that plate is that Posada never left home plate. Most catchers would have gone over where that ball was coming and vacated the plate but he had such confidence in Derek being able to catch that long short hop that he stayed at the plate I think a lot of people miss that about the play that's playing together first time I saw Derek he was 18 about 160 pounds in Yankee Stadium just gotten drafted out of I think it was Kalamazoo Michigan does that sound
0: right yep Michigan
2: and I remember watching how he interacted with his mother and father and his sister they were all there and and watching, he, he had alert eyes. I call it a good face. He just was aware of things going around him. And he had such a great foundation with his parents. And uh, and watching how he uh, treated his sister, I said, okay, there's a lot of things are to challenge guys playing in New York, but he's going to be able to handle a lot of them. He, he had a great foundation that his parents, you know, I'm at the mercy of mothers and fathers of the world because by the time I get them in the big leagues, they've kind of formulated – how they're going to go about their life to some extent you can surround them with great peer pressure like Nelson Cruz, but Derek right. brought a lot of that on his own. And we had, we had a bunch of those guys, Bernie, Posada, Mariano. We had, it was a, you know, a lot of people that cared about what their teammates thought. Is that making sense?
0: No, I, I love that. I love, and Greg, I hope will attest to this, that uh, I love that inside baseball stuff for me thinking the game is way more better than just watching it because I want to know why, not, I want to know why and how, not what happened, but why and how. So when
2: when I'm broadcasting, I want people to go by and go, okay, wow. I never knew that before. I've always wanted to know that. Like I did a thing at MLB a couple of weeks ago about what's said when you call down to the bullpen, what's the actual exchange like? Mm -hmm. Greg knows this. We had, you have a good bullpen when the phone rings and nobody has to answer it.
0: Yes. He said that last week. I We're said that last week. Last I week. said, yeah. you know,
1: when, when the phone rings and one guy takes off his coat, you have a good bullpen.
2: Yep. That, that's what I've always tried to get to. That We had three different setups. We had red, yellow, green. You know, you, the worst thing you can do with a relief pitcher is dry hump them. You know, it's just, I. if I had to walk, <laughs> watch, watch two things to tell me if a manager knows what he's doing, I'll watch his bullpen usage, the dry humps, and I'll watch his infield depths. There's so many mistakes made on infield depths nowadays, but. I see these guys warming up a left and right-handed pitcher, Greg, in the second inning. Come on, man. You shouldn't go to bed the night before if you don't know who your long reliever is. I used to tell the GM all the time, listen, we go to bed the night before a day game, and we don't know who our long reliever is tomorrow. If this guy gets hit to the line of the first pitch of the game, then we haven't done our job. Your job is what ifs. Yep. You need to be on top of what ifs. That's why you see something crazy happen injury-wise, and it's very seamless what happens. And other guys are in full panic mode because they don't – Oh, I wasn't expecting that. It's the what if guys. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what really spring train's is about in a long time. You're trying to attack, okay, if my Matt Williams, my third baseman gets hurt, where are we going? If uh, Jay Bell can't play second base physically, what are we going to do? Because the season doesn't stop, and nobody's going to feel sorry for you, and they're glad you, that you're that you have your pain, okay? That's mm-hmm. just the way it is.
1: I love it. Oh, that's why, uh, Brandon, that's why I, I love this guy you, you, you asked. And, you know, one of my favorite things about Buck was he would always find a way to make the rounds during batting practice unless something was, you know, really important or some meeting was going on. And that was pretty rare for the most part. It was Buck would walk around and you might get three seconds with him. You might get five minutes. You might get half a BP. And it would, you know, always there would always be a conversation you know, you're good tonight. You're not good tonight. Where are we at? You know, um, you know, once or twice, I think in Arizona, he just kind of, was like, you're, you're, you're not going to go. So, you know, you can go hang out down there if you want, you can sit in the dugout for a little bit, you're done tonight. And, uh, I just always appreciated knowing he knew exactly where I was at so that when the phone actually did ring, I was the only guy taking my coat off.
2: You know, we, I enjoyed that as much as they did, but I felt like that was working. I didn't go out and talk to the three-hole hitter that was hitting 300. You know, I'd look at, oh, here's my five guys that aren't playing tonight. I need to make sure I walk by there and just let them vent a little bit. You know, and that's, that's part of it. And, you know, it's easy to go up to Greg Olson, who's doing real well. What's hard is to go up to a guy that had not got anybody out in a month, you know. And that's really how you make your medal. And you, you have to have those tough conversations. You look at your sheet and you go, who needs me today? You know, it's like uh, in college, Ron Polk, did, I was Ron Polk's first recruiting class at Mississippi State. He didn't talk to me for like 10 days, Holy. Now I was hitting <laughs> 480 and leading the nation and hitting. Finally, one day I go, coach, is everything all right? He goes, you need me to kiss your butt? He goes, I'll let you know when you're <laughs> something right. You know, I'll let you know. You know, do you oh, need me great. To how great you are every day? You know, those guys are – it's easy. By the way, I don't want to miss this because I see Minnesota there. I think that's a, my favorite ballpark target. No kidding. i tell you why. Because baseball functionality, which is no – Minnesota, the Twins have always got this right. The baseball functionality of that dugout, that locker room, that batting case, that bullpen, it's done the way it's supposed to be. The bullpen's throw throwing the right direction. The dugout has a certain sight line. Uh, the the locker room flows into the cage and into the dugout baseball people design that with the architect. We did that in in Arizona. They said, here's the square footage. Now let's let's Greg, you remember the spring training facility in Tucson? A lot of people say that they let us design that baseball wise. We put the cage underneath, you know, we let the, the minor league teams be across the street where we could go get them, but not right up against us. Nowadays, I see some of these ballparks and I go, uh, baseball people to get involved with that. That was architects only. Okay. I'm done.
1: <laughs> oh man, Buck. That's why, uh, like I said, one of my favorites, um, always way, way ahead of anything that I've ever kind of run through in my life, but you, you know, lucky enough, we had two years together and bringing some of it to my attention. Um, why I don't want to, uh, we are
2: past your 45 minutes oh, I, and I don't I- want to. We all try to act like we're unbelievably busy. We're really not. Are we going to talk about Barry Bonds? You want to? We can
0: talk about anything you want. I'm, I'm not just, really. a, I'm just a humble servant.
2: I'm like, I, You know funny. Ever since I we walked Barry, I was like his new best friend. He would come over during BP and go, "Hey, Buck, how you doing?" He never talked to anybody. Yeah. But I wish I had. You got to understand how competitive Greg was. And this is towards the end of his career. He knew he wasn't carrying his normal array of bullets. But the look at him, he knew it was the right move, but he didn't want to do it, okay? <laughs> I'll never forget. True. It was like, you know, are you shitting? Are you kidding me? You're really <laughs> going to this? I know it's probably the right move, but golly, I want some of this guy. I think I can get him out. I know I can get him out. But I know you can get out Brent May. Anyway.
1: Well, I mean, that's where we kind of go, where, you know, you're playing a game that's way ahead to even have that thought because as soon as bonds walked up, it was, you were out of the dugout in four fingers and I was sitting on the mound going, all right, you know, kind of pitched him backwards. Last time had him on the three, two pitch. I was like, what am I going to do now that I'm 50 pitches deep and 43. Well, I was like, yeah. And that 90 mile, that 93 that I had earlier, it ain't there anymore. And the hooks, you know, and I was like going, I can't change up him to death. He'll kill," You know, So that was what I was thinking. Then I saw the four
2: and I was like, yeah. Hey, you know, I kid people all the time. They go, well, there was no base open. Oh, yeah, there is. There's always a base open, Brandon. It just happened to be home plate.
1: Oh, yeah, that's, yeah, that was kind of my theory at the end of, at the end of my career was like, there's always a base open.
2: I I still see it. I see it in these playoffs. I go, I would rather walk in a run than give in right here. You know, and I've said it from the dugout, to players, You know, a lot of times I'll go, "Cheese." you know, you get in here, the game gets away from you. You give up one, you're still in it.
0: That's That's
1: beautiful. Yeah. Now, that was one uh, of
2: my favorites. You know, every – for the the listeners,
1: every May 27th, I'll send Buck a happy anniversary (laughs) text, (laughs) laugh a little bit about it. But it was funny just uh, getting into the clubhouse after the game and all the, you know, press comes running right over to me. I, I assumed that they had already hit you. But-
2: well, I asked him, I said, listen, just equate, don't, you, you, we live in such a result oriented society. You're saying it's a good move because it worked. You should say whether it was a good or bad move. Did it give us the best chance to win the game? You know, Bonds, Bonds had come in as a pinch hitter that day. He didn't have MVP Jeff Kent hitting behind him. Okay. So a lot of people <laughs> miss that. And, hey, and, uh, you know, Brent Maine's a good major league player. Don't get me wrong, but he's not Kent. He wasn't bonds and we had a chance there but I'll never forget coming up the runway uh, Brian Anderson it was his W and he's got his skivvies on and that's about all he had on it he's probably four or five beers deep he's looking at me talking about the size of elephant uh, parts you uh, know as I'm walking up there he's just looking at me saying hey, man that was my W I can't believe it and so but there were two old ball guys baseball guys that used to chase the foul balls do you remember Greg down the lines in yeah. old camp? And the next day they come out about three o'clock. Nobody's around. They're looking around. They're all they're in their early seventies, late sixties, and they go, "Hey, Buck, come here." Because that was some great stuff. I love that because I can't stand bonds. And that, Oh, but we don't tell anybody we said that. It's hilarious.
0: I love it. That.
1: It's uh, good. That's good. Brandon, you got anything left for?
0: Honestly, yeah. honestly, I feel like that's the perfect place to end. Hopefully, we can get you on again because. Uh, I love talking shop with people who can blow me out of the water with this stuff. And I can just offer up what I think and let people talk about it. You guys killed it today. And I really, I really appreciate your time, Buck. Uh, thank you so much.
2: No, Nobody's that busy. Remember that when they tell you, it's kind of like autographs. I remember players said, gosh, I'm sign- tired of signing autographs. I said, pal, when you got to worry is when they quit asking. Right.
0: Greg? <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, you know what? It's going to be it's it's going to be fine in about a year or two. Just keep playing the way you are. You will have nobody to sign anything for other than a check. Do you get oh. those you get those uh, cards in the mail, Greg, all of them? I do. Uh, we just bought a new house and my wife thinks that by me not signing them and just sending them back that they won't find me again, but that ain't working.
2: You know they've got a book that rates you. 1 star, 2 star, 3 star, 4 star, 5 star. <laughs> Cuz if you're a 5-star signer, you're liable to get a car show up that you got to sign in your driveway or something. So you be careful about becoming a five-star signer. Good to know, but I'm not, <laughs> nobody with me, Greg.
1: Yeah. When I told Brandon that we were having you on it, you know, it's fun for me because you're a lot smarter than me and it's fun to just hear you go. And, and um, you know, the, the two years that we had together in Arizona, it really was enjoyable for me just because you would walk in the food room and you'd give me a tidbit on Floyd, the barber, cause Andy <laughs> Griffiths was on. And I'm just like looking at you going, all right, got me yeah. there, you know? And it was just a constant of, um, information that was just, it was fun. You know, yeah. you made it fun. That's my
2: point. You know, we, we had fun, you know, nobody took themselves too seriously. You know, it really did. You know what life and if you did. Greg, you remember running to the bus so you could get a good seat for the barrage of stuff that was going to come on the bus? Man, no. when something stupid would happen on the field, uh, then we would – you knew that Matt Williams, Greg Olson, Devon White, uh, Jay bell they were going to be merciless. And you, everybody would get a good seat so they could get it for that 45-minute, half-hour ride to the airport because it was going to be priceless. You always try to be good, good sheet and stretching because nothing was off limits. If your feelings got hurt easily, you were in the wrong place. Weren't they, Greg? Oh, man, it was uh,
1: – I remember Carlos Tosca, our bench coach, coming up years later. I think we were – I got invited back as a guest advisor for like three weeks, and he and I would sit down and, and have a drink, and he'd be like, my favorite thing of that – Year or two years was you calling Randy Johnson out for being one minute late to stretching. And af- after like a week of him getting buried, he never was late again. He goes, he fell into line with that group. And I was like,
2: it was just, it never came on. You were no better than limits. anybody else. Nothing off limits, you know. And after a while, you just, you know, Randy hated spring training in Tucson, hated it. You know, he he had his kids and his wife in Phoenix, and he really, so he was just miserable. You know, we had to work on pitcher stuff. Let me know if you got to go, and he, you know, he didn't want to bunt, he didn't want to slide. You know, rightfully so, he didn't want to hit and run. He didn't want to. And I finally said two things: I said, Randy, you give us a sign, you tell us what you're going to do, so at least the base runner knows. Because we put on bunt, you hit; we put on hit, you bunt. You know, it it doesn't matter. So I also said, listen, here's how we're going to do spring training. Your side day and the day you pitch, we'll see you. The other three days, you can go to Phoenix. I don't care. Just sleep. Just but be ready to take your work day and your game day. We'll make sure both of those happen up in Phoenix. And it was one of the best moves I made. You know, just, hey, you're miserable down here. People don't want to hear it. It's fine. Only thing you're going to do is take a work day and throw on your fifth day and be ready to start the season. And it worked out fine. That's why Schilling was so good for him. He'd walk by me and go, hey, heard A pitch of shutout, you go, hey, top that one tomorrow. See if you can <laughs> okay. Now uh, no. it
1: was um, it was a fun, you know. You said something in '98. We were sitting around and and you know, we, we got it dialed up a little bit in May and played up played good from there on. But you said something that it was like late April, and some of the guys were digging where they were at, and it was some of the expansion guys, and then you had Matt Williams, you had Jay Bell. You had a bunch of the old guys that played right. And I remember you sitting there and you called us in and we'd lost not how many in a row. And you're like, you realize every one of you guys are trying out for next year's team, right? And that was kind of all you said. And, and you walked out and I was just kind of looking around. I knew I was on a tryout because I barely made the squad. And I was just kind of looking around the room and all the young guys going, yeah, that light just flipped on and that light just flipped on. And I was like,
2: well done. Greg, do you remember the division we started that year where we took the, the six teams with the worst records and we put a division up back in the advanced room and I said, I want to win this division. I, I, I want to be an expansion team that didn't lose 100 games. Everybody expects you to lose 100 games. But we won that division. I don't know if I did it with the pitchers or the position players. Every advanced meeting, we would update the divisional standings of the six worst teams. We went into August. I said, here's the six worst team. I want to win this division. Now, we didn't get rings for being the best of the six worst, but we didn't lose 100 games, by God. Yeah, 99. No, that was – That's the biggest turnaround in baseball history. I'm very proud when somebody says that. The biggest turnaround in baseball history from 98 to 99. Very proud of that.
1: They would have been – anybody in there other than Matty, Jay, Andy, Bennis, would have been stupid to think that they had a guaranteed job. Devon
2: White. Yeah, Devo. Yeah, Devo. Well, you know, I mean, Devo wasn't coming off a great year or two. No, he was 38, 39. You know, I had never seen him die for a baseball. And that year, he dove for a ball. And he came in, he looked at me, he said, it's time to get out. I had to die for one finally. <laughs> now, got, I got one
1: question for you, and I'll, I'll we'll, we'll we'll close it up. But what did – I mean – if everything being equal and we took statistics, I'm still trying to figure out how I made that team in 98 because <laughs> you, you sent you sent me down on a, down to double A and it was like a 40 mile an hour wind blowing out to left. And I don't think I finished. No, I remember that. I remember like I, yesterday. I, don't I, remember. Fin- I didn't I didn't finish an inning. You were over at the big field doing the real game. Oh, I and was. I was like, I'm done. I, I didn't get out yeah. of – my 15 pitches were up, and I gave up three Greg, runs an inning. And I was there.
2: <laughs> Greg, I was there. I was out there on left field. I was there. I went over and watched it. <laughs> but anyway, uh, the wind – I used to tell people – turn in a report. guy had an awful <laughs> outing. But the, what do you mean? He gave he, four shutout innings in spring training. Yeah, but there was a 30-mile-an-hour wind blowing in. Those balls hit would have been home runs. Just the flip side of that, you know, I wasn't going to miss the chance to carry someone with your moxie and uh, the other part of it. That was – you had made the club before you went over there, and I could care less about what the results were with the wind and everything, just as long as you felt healthy. And, you know, because you didn't make any excuses, and you said, "I, you know, I, I sucked statistically today, but I felt fine. Good enough for me. Let's go north.
1: Please. I appreciate that. No, I just looked at I looked at Goose and I just went, that might be it. Shook his hand. I was like going, I, <laughs> that might be the end of me right there. And he just goes, um, yeah, you work, you got your work in.
2: He's talking about Goose, Mark Connor, Mark New, you know. And he said, uh, "Did you see that?" I go, "Yeah, I watched some of it from behind left field." He goes, uh, "He feels good physically, no problem. You know, wind got him." I go, "I know. We'll take him." What else you want to talk about? It was easy. <laughs> that's, that's
1: awesome. Funny.
2: Oh, I could have told you. But, they, you know, it's not near the brain surgery they make it out to be. You know, it's they make it – they overcomplicate a lot of it. It's like uh, people can't figure out why Lance McCullers' arm hurts. He threw, he threw two-thirds of his pitches are off-speed pitches. Two-thirds. Yep. Two-thirds. He threw, he, threw, he threw 38 breaking balls and 12 change-ups last night. 50 out of 73. and They go, why is his arm hurting? Well, I wonder why. It's just
1: high effort, high effort breaking ball. It's just like, it's not like you're softening up a curve ball. It's, it's a high max effort. Well, it's a torque. It's a torquer. I call Mm -hmm. it a torquer, hard torque. You know, and the more you, the more you screw over a change up and get on the inside of it and show that effort, that shoulder, and then you're doing the elbow damage on the breaking ball. You're just got this, it can't be said about uh, throwing fastballs to kind of straighten everything out.
2: Well, you know, the good Lord didn't intend us to put our arm over our head and jerk it down violently 100 times every fifth day. That's why we walk around like this and why sore, uh, softball pitchers don't have sore arms. So, yeah, but you can eliminate a lot of the chances of being hurt if you just go, it's like you go to the doctor. Does that hurt? No. Does that hurt? No. Does that hurt? Well, I guess it does hurt. You've told me three times that it should hurt, so it does. But I, I just, I chuckle when they can't figure out why his arm's hurting. Come yeah. on, man. I go talk to the it, but see clinics <laughs> is telling them they can't hit his curveball. Well, let me throw it 78 times in a row. And then you you know what? They definitely won't be able to hit it because he won't be able to take them out. Okay, I'm done.
0: Yeah, there's uh-huh. something to be something to be said for absence makes the heart grow fonder. You can't oh, just man. you can't you can't build an entire meal out of desserts. You gotta have well, there's a also meal.
2: there's also an expression that Ron White uses, you can't fix stupid.
0: Yeah, I love Ron White. <laughs> Well, uh Buck, thank you. Yes,
2: yeah, so thank, you.
0: Thank, Good luck. You. thank you. you. thank you. so much yeah, for man. the time today. That's Buck Showalter. You can catch him on TV. Or thank you again to people for just checking this out. Greg, uh, we've lost Mister Showalter. He's he's taken off. But um, wow, I don't. How do you even put a bow on that? I I
1: just I you know I, I was paying him a compliment on the way out, but he really. Was the best, or you know, one of the top two guys I've ever played with? Intelligence-wise, there is you know few above, if any, and none that none that I played with or for. It 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 was, and he you know, and he goes all over the place, and it's just like gives you makes you start thinking. Okay, yeah, Jeter was late on that play. And you're like, yeah, okay, I can see that. You know where he's supposed to be, but mm-hmm. you know um, that's why I,
0: I knew he'd be great. He's 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 hours of entertainment. It says a lot that he's still in demand for jobs thirty years after he started managing. When he he commands that kind of respect, you know it's it's, well, it's well, he's, super... that,
1: he's, he's that smart, and I think that uh, yeah. you know yeah. we can go into the analytics stuff and
0: not. I think he would be one of the guys probably that wouldn't be using it. Well. Hopefully the game's not done with him in the managerial sense. I know his name's come up a little bit, and obviously I wasn't going to ask him that. But, uh, oh, what a great guest. That, that's exactly what I had envisioned starting the show, was finding ways to dig into the game in a way where no other podcast is doing it. Um, I hope you thought my questions for him were good. I tried not to step on your toes too much. No, you know what? I mean, I, I, I had a couple
1: things I wanted to ask, and, and I did. and And I hope you, you know, you should start figuring out when we have guests that uh, you better get your questions in. If you got like a, you know, a couple of the A's and then a couple of B's, you better, you better have them sorted because it, you know, the guys that I'm bringing on, will (laughs) will ramble a little bit. We'll get off topic and you might not get a chance to ask your third, a question if you don't get it in.
0: That's good though, because preparation is good, but it's, it, nothing makes uh nothing makes up for just having good guests so uh yeah. thank you so much for getting him uh we we are working on too. we did tease this last week uh trying to get matt Wahlbeck on and so he caught for the twins and angels and cubs and he was all over the place in the 90s and so i think sometime next month we'll have matt walbeck on and get to talk to a guy who's caught at least one no hitter and and all kinds of fun stuff but um Yeah, anything left unsaid this week that you need to get out there? No, we're good to go. Yeah, man. Well, so, again, thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, Really nothing else to say. You've been listening to that 90s baseball pod powered by Access Twins, and we'll catch you next week. Peace. Peace out.